tonight. And again, for the opportunity to just take a look into uh, your word, the reliability of it, the importance of it. And pray that you would just help us to understand why we believe what we believe. And just guide the whole study and like Michael prayed, whatever it is that um, you want to do with this Thursday night study, you just show us and uh, we'll just continue to be obedient to your call and wait to see what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so again, back to the inerrancy and infallibility of God's Word. I tried to make it a little different this time compared to what it was the last time we went through this. Um, And I've got some different stuff in here. But uh, Tanner was, when we were talking, his concern is not so much that I get through all the stuff that I have. Um, Because in listening to it, he goes, you know, everything's there, there's enough there but he wants more of you guys involved in the teaching. So questions, comments, uh, responses is what we're looking for. And if you don't, I'm going to end the study by telling Tanner I tried. (laughs) So inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. So I wrote down, you guys have the notes here, I pretty much just copied what I had onto your thing, most of it, not all of it, but... After hearing Michael teach for the last three weeks about God, okay, he used the Bible to teach us about the attributes and the characteristics of, characteristics of God. But why should we believe what Michael taught, or rather, why should we believe the Bible is true? Because if Michael taught us about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and he used lots of scripture, you guys, we got all those notes, we saw him, a um, ton of notes. I mean, he spent an hour each night Verse, 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 verse. I mean, he went through a lot of Bible scripture going through that. But if we don't know the Bible, if it's just a book, or how do we know it's not just a book? And if he used this book to prove his point, why should we believe that? Why do we believe the Bible's true? That is a question for you guys. Tanner, I'm asking a question to him. (laughs) Why? Why? Because God said so, but <laughs> what does that mean? Because I mean, it's been proven. Historically. What's been proven? That historically accurate. You got to talk louder. Richard can't hear you. That it's historically accurate. Um, I mean, people have run it through tons of tests to see if it lines up with historical fact or to see if it, if Jesus was alive and the things that the Bible says about him actually did happen. Right. Okay. So <clears throat> there are, you know, the different things that are out there. Josh McDowell's more than a carpenter. Um, Lee Strobel, um, case for Christ. Case for Christ. Uh, Simon Greenleaf, who it's now called Trinity School of Law, but Simon Greenleaf, it used to be called Simon Greenleaf School of Law, and Simon Greenleaf actually um, set out to prove a court to to produce a court case, basically, to disprove the Bible in a court scenario. And came out as a Christian. Um, so there are, there have been many people who have uh, tried to disprove the Bible or prove the the uh, error of the Bible and and the beliefs that people have in it. And they come back um, actually believing what the Bible has to say. Um, so what we want to do again, and we did this a couple months ago, is to take a look at the Bible itself, uh, the book, not through the book, but mostly from outside sources to prove that what this book has to say and what it has said in the past has either come to pass or the majority of it has come to pass, which would give us um, surety to know that probably the things that it says about future events that have not taken place will take place also. So, when we say the Bible's inerrant, because we're calling this inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, when we say the Bible's inerrant, we mean it is without error of fact or any statements that contradict. So, the facts that are in the Bible are true, and the statements that are in the Bible don't contradict each other. Okay, that's inerrancy. 
So the facts of the Bible, um, when it talks about Jericho, when it talks about the sun standing still, the different things the Bible has to say, they're facts that have to be proven. For a long time, they didn't believe in a lot of the things the Bible talked about. So archaeologists took Bible, took the Bible, or the, the scriptures, the whatever it was they had, the scrolls, went into the Middle East and started digging and finding stuff. And stuff that would prove that what the Bible had to say was actual reality. Um, I think I, I said last time we went through this, when I was talking about Jericho, how in, this, in the story of Jericho, when the children of Israel went to Jericho, they were told to march around the city for seven days, seven times a day. The last day, to, as they went around, they were to blow trumpets and yell. And the Bible says, this book that we have in front of us, says that when that happened, the walls came down, but when they came down, they came down outwardly, not inwardly. Okay, And that was a belief of Christians for a long time, is that that's the way it happened. Skeptics and people who didn't believe the Bible said there's no way that couldn't have happened. Because if you think about it, I mean, we could all sit in here and yell right now, blow trumpets or saxophones or megaphones even for that matter. And we probably wouldn't knock these walls down here in the church. But when the archaeologists actually discovered Jericho back in the 80s, I believe it was, uh, I want to say 85, 86, somewhere in there when they actually found the ruins of Jericho, when they discovered it, the, the walls were actually blown outward. They weren't blown inward. So even if the children of Israel or the Hebrew children were able to overcome the city and knock the walls down, they were outside the city. So if they knocked the walls down, they would have to knock them inward. That's the only way they could do it. You know, when you see, like if you watch Cops or some program where they try to get into a house or an apartment and they start kicking the door down, when they get done, the door is never blown outward. They kick the door in. That's the term. We're going to kick the door in because it goes in. You can't kick the door and have it go out. It doesn't come towards you. It doesn't work that way. So when they went there, the only thing they could have done themselves was knock the wall inward. But the wall, when they found it archaeologically, when they found the, the site, the walls were blown outward, which is what this book says happened. So the statement of fact that that's what happened to the walls of Jericho was proven by archaeologists. It was true. What the Bible says, that God is the one who knocked the walls down. Because blowing trumpets and yelling, or blowing horns and yelling, wouldn't knock the wall down, number one, and it definitely wouldn't knock it outward, because if they were on the outside and they had some kind of a um, ability to knock it down. I think of, uh, there was a cartoon... When I was a little kid, it was called Baboom or something like that. It was this little, he was like a baby, superhero guy. And he could actually, he would open his mouth and, and yell and this supersonic voice would come out and it would knock things down. So it would go inward again. It wouldn't come outward. So we can see that there's, there's facts in the Bible that have archaeologically been proven as true. Um, the statements in the Bible... Uh, when it talks about, well, a lot of different things. It talks about the, the currents in the sea in Isaiah and how, how they, the currents flow and they can go different directions. It talks about the, the sphere, the earth being spherical, round, circular. Um, at a time when the majority of the people believed that the earth was flat. They, believed, they used to believe that if you sailed... Because you can only see, I think at sea level, the horizon line is, I believe it's like eight miles, is what you see because of the curvature of the earth. So they believe that when you stood at sea level and you looked out, at that eight miles, once you got past that, it basically just fell off the cliff and you went to wherever, you know, the turtle that was holding the earth or all the different mythology that's out there. But biblically, even though now... They try to say it was the Christians that were the flat earthers. The Bible believers were the flat earthers. They flopped it. It was not 
the Bible believers that were flat earthers. It was the non-believers. Now, I'm sure there were some that were believers of the scrolls or the scriptures at the time that were flat earthers. But for the most part, the Bible said it was a circular, it was a, a, a circle that was hung on nothing, God said. They used to say that there was like strings that hung down and held the stars, you know. and um, It's all this weird stuff, but as, as in t- knowledge has grown and the more they dig into just science in general, just the stuff that's to be discovered out there, the Bible is proven more and more true, especially on the things that they said were totally impossible and doubtful. Um, I believe one day, well, maybe not. They should one day discover that evolution is completely false because the Bible teaches creation. And it was God that spoke things into existence and they came into existence. And But they've got a whole religion built on this evolutionary theory. And that's all is a theory. And it's no different than, I mean, our basically our belief as Christians is a creation theory. But the difference is, is this book that we have that I was just talking about that has been proven right over and over again is the one that tells us that this is the way God did it. Now, there's the people out there, the the uh, Hugh Rosses and guys like that who you know, tell you that the Hebrew word yom can mean many things. Um, and their interpretation, the reason they believe that it means more than a 24-hour period is because of their education. It tells them that if you're going to be a scientist and be thought of as anything um, that is to be listened to, evolution is the only thing that you can have. Though there are now many, many scholars uh, that believe that there's no way evolution could have been true. So, statements of fact and statements that are made that don't contradict, and we're going to get into some of those. Okay, so that's what we mean by inerrant. Without error of fact or any statements that contradict. Okay, inerrancy... um, used to be, they used to believe that inerrancy was when you talked about salvation according to the Bible, then yes, the Bible is inerrant as far as salvation is concerned. Jesus is the only way it took the death of Jesus Christ in order for man to be saved. And in that, it's inerrant. But everything else we're not quite sure about. And that was the belief of the church and now is becoming the belief of the church again. Actually, even going further to where now it's not even the salvation issue that is inerrant. It's, that's in question too. But while inerrancy is more concerned, uh, no, I'm sorry, inerrancy isn't just in passages that speak about salvation, but applies to all historical and scientific statements as well. It's not only accurate in matters related to faith and practice, but it is accurate and without error regarding any statement, period. Okay? So again, it's accurate in historical and scientific statements. So I just talked about some of them. The historical. They used to question a lot of stuff. They still have questions about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah because they haven't found it yet. And they may never find it. I I believe it's probably somewhere around the Dead Sea area. Very, very salty area, which is why they think uh, what God had done in destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, which he said it would be destroyed and not found again. They wouldn't know where it was. It was going to be utterly destroyed, according to God. Remember Lot's wife at the time, it says she turned with a longing desire for Sodom and Gomorrah. God turned her into a pillar of salt. So that's why salt, his wife, the destruction... It's a place where nothing grows until that one day when Jesus comes back and he puts his foot on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two and the river flows down and it actually brings life back to that area again. Um, but up to that point, I don't know if they'll ever find it. I don't know if, it, if it's going to happen. Um, God does, I don't. But scientifically, um, like I said, the, the fact that the Bible talks about the currents in the ocean, it talks about the earth being round, um, there's things in there where they talk about the sun that stood still. And there's even 
from what I've read, historically there is a, a period of time in the Bible where the time seems to have gone. They lost some time somewhere. And the only explanation I would have, scientists may, somebody's mathematics or something, they may say that's the problem, but um, my explanation would be because of, obviously, my belief in the, in the scriptures is that it's because God said the sun was going to stand still for about an hour one afternoon, or it went backwards during a battle. So, um, anyways, inerrancy, again, isn't just in the passages to speak about salvation. It applies to all historical and scientific statements as well. Okay, period. Now, inerrancy is more concerned with the details of the scripture. Infallibility deals more with one's personal knowledge of the Lord. So to be infallible means that something is incapable of failing and therefore is permanently binding and cannot be broken. So the infallible, something that's incapable of failing, God gave his word and he says, and we'll see it later in Matthew, that not one jot, not one tittle, not a crossing of a T, not a dot of an I, not a comma, not a period, not a whatever it is that God wanted in the scriptures is going to fail. It's incapable of failing. So for us as believers, it's important because it is attached to the character of God, number one. Okay, you can see that in your thing. Attached to the character of God. God's word, I kept thinking about this. If you don't have your word, what do you really have? You want to be according to what the Bible says, and I know that this is a little off because we're trying not to use the Bible to prove what we're trying to prove here. But Jesus said that as a, as a, as a Christian, as a believer, that our yes is to be yes and our no is to be no. We're supposed to be people of our word. So if we're not people of our word, which many Christians are not, and I know we all fail in, in probably all areas or most areas. And this is one where we can't always do everything we said we were going to do. But to the best of our ability, we try to do that. We try to do everything we're going to say. So that what that does is it shows our character. When you tell somebody, I'm going to do this thing, whatever it would be. And all of a sudden you build this reputation... Either good or bad. Your reputation is, no, when, when Jonathan says he's going to do whatever the thing is, everybody would go, no, oh, Jonathan told you that? Oh, yeah, then it'll be done. You don't even have to worry about it. He's going to take care of it. He'll do that thing. <laughs> or is your reputation going to be um, when Philip, since there's no Philip here, <laughs> when Philip tells you he's going to do something, don't hold your breath. He's probably not going to do it. He'll tell you what he thinks you want to hear in order to get you away from him, to get off his back. Very common practice in business to do this kind of thing. When I was building that hotel down by Disneyland, um, constant meetings. And we'd be in a meeting, and I was doing one hotel, and our company did two. And I was in charge of one, and the, the boss's brother was in charge of another. We'd be sitting in our meeting, and they say, okay, Kevin, I need to know that you will have this job at a certain point by a certain date. I need to know that it will be ready by then. And Ron will go, oh, yeah, it will be ready. I go, no, wait a minute. You can't guarantee that. You can't tell them this is going to be ready because it doesn't look like we will be ready on that date. He goes, no, we have to be ready. I'm like, look, here's some issues you guys have. And I'd lay out their problems like, I need switchgear, which is what the electricity comes into that you distribute throughout the hotel. I need the switchgear. I've sent you guys an RFI, which is a request for information. I've sent you RFIs for the last two months on the switchgear you want. And you haven't given it to me. I told you on the first RFI it takes three months to get this stuff. Once you give me what you want, it'll take three months. You want the hotel done in two months and you still haven't even told me what switchgear you want. So you're at least three months out if you give me the answer today. So Ron's like, no, you can't. We're going to get it done. I said, look, no, we can't get it done. It isn't what they wanted to hear, but it was the truth. And I wanted them to know that if I told them something, they could rely on what I was telling them. I wanted that to be my character. My character to be that when I give my word, it means something. It's very important. 
you want your kids to be the same way. When they tell you something, you want to be able to trust your kids. You want to know that your kids aren't lying. It's important. I remember one time uh, Tim and his buddy Michael, uh, something had happened in their classroom, and the two of them got in trouble. And the teacher had questioned Tim about whatever the issue. I don't remember the issue. He, they were only like, I don't know, five, six years old, something like they were little guys. And Tim denied whatever the accusation was, and Michael denied the accusation. But they knew one of the two was lying. So they pulled me and Patty and then Manuel and Lisa together, and they said, here's what the issue was, here's what the boys said. Who do you think probably did this thing, and who do you think is lying? Patty and I said, Tim does not lie. So he probably did not do this. He does not lie. He has never lied to us. Manuel and Lisa go, you know what? We've been catching Michael lying a lot lately. It's probably him. Not this Michael. Not Michael. <laughs> and that, that Michael is now with the Lord, the one that I'm talking about. He's, he's gone to be with the Lord at 17 years old. He did some stuff and he ended up going home. Um, but it, it's, it's nice to the character. Tim, at a young age, had already developed a character that when he was being accused of something, Patty and I could stand up and say, no, our son has never lied to us. And it was proven because the parents of the other son, the other child, was able to step up and say, no, our son has lied to us. And so Tim's character and Michael's character were already proven. So for God's word to be inerrant and accurate is important because it's attached to his character. Michael went through that. God's character of love, truth, his reliability, all that. I'm not going to cover it because you can get Michael's CDs or listen to those online about what he taught about God. So it's important because it's his character. So that's why it's so important. I know that a lot of people don't think it's all that, you know, oh, whatever, it's just the Bible. But it is important because it's the character of God. Okay, the other reason that inerrancy is extremely important is because it's taught in the Scriptures, right? 2 Timothy 3.16 For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. Right? Okay, I'm not going to go into the whole thing because that's actually, I got that Scripture at the end. It's important because it is taught in the Bible itself that God is accurate. So, it's inerrant. Okay, that's important. Third reason, it's the historic position of the Christian church. We have to stand on this. This is what the church was based and built on, is this book, God's spoken word. So it's important that it stays this way. The fourth reason, it's foundational to the other essential doctrines. Just like our thing up here that we have from Tozer, where he says, I must point out that in the Scriptures there are certain basic truths upon which other truths are built. If we do not understand these basic truths, other truths simply become a caricature and lose their significance in our life. No truth stands by itself, but always in relationship with other truths of God's Word. This is where heresy begins to develop when men separate one truth from another truth, and once we get a grasp of the basic fundamental truths of God's Word, then we can begin to understand the rest of what the Bible teaches. So, I had to read that because I don't think I've read that yet since we've been doing these recordings. So it's foundational to other essential doctrines. If we don't know that this is truly God's spoken word, preserved by Him over the thousands of years, if we don't know that for fact, then how can we know anything else? That's the foundation. And that's the whole purpose for these classes that we're doing is we're building the foundation because you have to have the basic truths in order to get into the deeper truths. Because we're going to see, when you get weird thinking going on in your head, it's you go down this little rabbit trail and you just take off. And all of a sudden, you're, just, you're teaching who knows what. But it doesn't look like this Bible. And then, and then we get versions of what they call the Bible that don't look like the Bible. Because of some weird belief, because the foundation of it wasn't built right. And I'm not hearing anything out of you guys. Why? Uh, That's it. Now what? Breaths. Now what? So what? What do you think? Other than I'm taking too short of breaths. 
So as far as inerrancy, infallibility, anything? Question. You say... Um, Don't read ahead. I'm not reading ahead. Okay. I'm reading behind. Okay, go ahead. Second line, when you say the Bible is inerrant, we mean that it's without error of fact or any statement that contradicts. Are you talking about statements that the Bible makes about itself or statements that are contained within the Bible, like lies that are contained within the Bible? Even well, even the lies, even the stuff, like we're going to see There's the one scripture, I used it last mm-hmm. time, where there's a, a seeming contradiction in the Bible but it isn't a contradiction. It's a scribal error. But it's obvious scribal error in the Bible. So the statements, whether it be... Because God, when God had men write the Bible, he, it's exactly what it is. He doesn't hide. Which you look at other Bibles, like when you read about Buddhism or you read about Hinduism or any of that, you never see the bad of the people that are the leaders. They're only these good, like God-like people. Joseph Smith and and uh, all these other guys, they're they're like perfect people. But when you read the Bible, you read about David who was a murderer, an adulterer, Solomon who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You see doubt in some of the people. You see uh, Aaron's, I mean, uh, um, Miriam ended up with leprosy because of what she did to Moses. You see Moses telling God, I'm not good enough to speak. Send somebody else. You see so much. And it's God shows you the warts and all. He doesn't cover over the bad stuff. So the statement of fact is good and bad. It's there. And God does it to show these people are all human just like we are. And that's what's so unusual about this book as compared to most other religious books. Like when you look at, let's, let's throw Catholicism in for, for example. When you talk about the Pope, That's an inerrant, infallible, sinless vicar of Christ here on earth. That's what he is. Well, they paint him that way, but I I know God doesn't see him that way. God sees everything. So when religious people want to write something about a religious icon, they only do the good. It's all good. There's none of the bad stuff. And uh, we, we want to cover that because people don't want to follow somebody that's fallible, you know. Most of the people uh, that talk about Chuck Smith, and, and I, I totally get the respect part where it's all the good stuff, but those of us that knew him, um, we know he was a fallible man, and he would tell you he was. He's perfect now, but when he was here, he would tell you he was not, and he did not feel worthy to have anybody think of him that way or worship him in that way because he knew he was just a fallible man. And... Um, Unfortunately, he just gets lifted up like that, and it's it's not what God wants. So the statement of fact would be good and bad, if that answered your question. I don't know. Hopefully, well, I, I was meaning more of lies that people told that were recorded in the Bible, like um, who killed Saul. Who killed Saul? Yeah, the, there's the, two different. The, the servant lied how how he died. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I was wondering, is that contained within that statement, or that talking about uh, talking about something different? Well, we have to take the whole thing, obviously, like in Saul's case, where it says he fell on his sword. So right away you go, well, he committed suicide Mm -hmm. or attempted to commit suicide. And then the other guy, when he came to David, said, "Hey, I saw Saul, and he wasn't quite dead." But he didn't want to be killed by the Philistines, so I wouldn't kill them. So Saul did fall on his sword, and maybe it appeared as he was dead. But the servant that came by later, not his servant, but the other guy that came by, the Amalekite, who came by later and killed him and actually thought he did David a service. And then David obviously wasn't happy with what he got done, and it ended up costing him. But um, it's it's looking at and you could go, well, it says that Saul fell on his sword and died. Well, it may have appeared. We, we obviously, we don't know exactly what happened, but there's no reason to doubt that the other guy, the Amalekite, came through and actually killed him. And it actually speaks more to the idea of what the Bible teaches because the Amalekites were always a type of the flesh in the Scripture. And 
according to the Bible, and this again is off because we're not doing the, but this is what Tanner wants, this conversation. <laughs> so we're getting it, Tanner, for you. Um, when, when the Amalekite came by, because the Amalekite being a type of the flesh, it was to show that in, in our lives, if we do not destroy the Amalekites, which Saul was told to do earlier in Samuel, which Tanner's going to get to on uh, Wednesday nights, so I'm already, now I get to teach before he does. Um, when the Amalekite was not destroyed, King Agag wasn't killed by Saul, and he was kept alive. It's The whole picture is that if we don't destroy the flesh or the Amalekites of our lives, eventually they come back and they destroy us. And it's a scriptural principle that's being taught. So it made more, it makes more sense because of the principle of scripture that it, what the Amalekites said was true is that Saul tried to destroy himself, but could not do it. And the Amalekite ended up doing it. And that's kind of the whole idea of you destroy the flesh or it destroys you. And that's what happened to Saul. Uh, the other thing that shows is the power of God is that it doesn't matter what you want to do until the day God says you're going to die. You can't even kill yourself. And if you don't uh, think that's true, Greg Laurie did a, a thing years ago on suicide and talks to a lot of people who tried to commit suicide. Uh, one guy, in fact, took a shotgun and put it to his chin and pulled the trigger and blew the front of his face off. And he has no chin. It's just like a hole in his mouth. And he interviews this guy. And the guy talks about it, how he was going to kill himself. But even God did not allow that guy to die. And he was glad because now he's a testimony to God because what he tried to do... And it didn't succeed. You do not get to die until God says it is time for you to die. And you don't live a day longer and you won't go a day sooner. So God's power, the sovereignty, all that. Michael covered that part, so we're not going to get into that. So, inerrancy attached to the character of God, taught in the scriptures. It's a historic position of the church and it's foundational to the other essential doctrines. I was looking up on May 2012. There was a a study done. More than half of Americans think the Bible has too little influence on a culture they see in moral decline, and yet only one in five Americans read the Bible on a regular basis. So we could say, yes, I believe the Bible is very important, and it's it's we have to have it in our lives. It's our leading, our guiding point, um, and it is supposed to be, but only one in five Christians read it. That's one-fifth. Right? One in five, one fifth. So, 20% of Christians read the Bible on a regular basis. I had some other statistics too that you're going to see in your notes I crossed out. It says, look at statistics and they're in another notebook sitting on my table or on my shelf at home. I forgot them. So, maybe the next time, I might bring them next week because it'll still work with next week's study too. So, I may bring them for that. But, Again, there are more. There are many who say they can't find a reason to believe in the Bible as a spiritual book because there's too many different versions, too many contradictions, too many errors. It was written by men. It's a bunch of old wives' fables. It's old and irrelevant, etc., etc. And I think we're one of the greatest hindrances to people believing in the Bible by the way we live and the way we behave. That's one of the biggest things. And that's why... Inerrancy is important because it's, it, it relates to the character of God. And if we were ones, if we are ones that read the Bible and we attempt to live what the Bible says, it's going to speak volumes to people. They will not be able to deny what the Bible teaches because of the way they see your life lived. But when you're just like everybody else out there, there's, I would say, I'll be generous and say, 75% of the people that I meet that claim to be Christians speak with very foul language. I mean, they drop F-bombs, and I mean, they talk horribly. Um, it's it's terrible. You want to get a good study on that, you can listen to I'll plug Michael's study last night about what your Christian life should look like and the things that God allows in your life and how it's used to purify but you have to allow it to do the purpose that God has for it. And it's talking in trials and tribulations and stuff. But Michael's study last night was really good on that. Um, so we don't want to be something that hinders people from being able to believe that the Bible is true. Casting Crowns has that line in one of their songs. is a uh, little girl speaking. And she's, she says that we are... Jesus is the only way to God. 
But we are not the only way to Jesus. And so many times we think we are. Uh, we, can't, we can't think that we're the only way that can get people to Jesus, but we can be the biggest hindrance to people getting to Jesus. And that is what we don't want to be. And it's going to come through our character. Our character of life is going to, going to help people to see the reality and the truth of the Scriptures by the way we live. There is nothing greater than having somebody tell you, I know God has to be real because of your life. I remember hearing that years ago from somebody. They, they said, I can't deny God. And these people were unbelievers. They wanted nothing to do with God. But when they saw the transformation in my life, they said, I cannot deny that there's a God because of your life. Because they knew me before and they saw me after. And they said, the only way that I could have made that change was through God. And they attributed what happened to me to God. Hopefully, I'm still doing that. I don't know. But that person... Um, another quote I have here, this is really good, by R.C. Sproul. Uh, you guys here uh, could read R.C. Sproul. I think you'll be okay with it. Very reform. Um, totally Calvinistic. He is like the, the spokesperson for Calvinism, five-point Calvinism. Um, very smart man. Don't agree with some of his doctrine. He is a Christian. He will be in heaven with us. And he and I can debate this there, his beliefs and mine. But uh, I just want to put that out there that he's not one I'm recommending you read his stuff. But this quote was really good. And he says, When we push against the Word of God, which is an unmovable rock, sooner or later we will find ourselves cursing the Word of God and spitting on it. And we think, nah, that's, what? Really? Would we do that? Um, I put here, according to Christianity, the Bible contains the very word of, contains God's very word, written by men, yes, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The church for many years, and for the most part, believed that the Bible was inerrant and infallible, but more recently has come under much attack from the church. So just last week, the week before, I was on a job. This guy was listening to somebody on the radio, an internet radio station this guy has, and he was talking about all kinds of stuff. I think uh, one of the things I heard him talking about was he, he has this written letter to Billy Graham, and he reads his letter about what he thought about Billy Graham. And then he started talking about the words of Jesus, Jesus, basically saying how they were the ones that were the most important. Okay, so the words of Jesus are the most important words in the Bible. And to a point, what he had to say was true. Um, in theory, what he was saying. But then the worker on the job, the guy, was, the guy that was listening to this guy, was explaining to me his ideas, and I knew that he got his ideas from the guy he was listening to, and I understood better what he was saying. Because what he told me was, he said, look, What's more important? He goes, because there's all these things in the Bible. He goes, but is it all on an equal plane? Or do the words of Jesus, are those more important than everything else that's in the Bible? So, Jesus is the word of God. What do you think? (laughs) But is his words more important than, say, the Pauline epistles? More important than Genesis? summed up the entire Bible in what he said, so I wouldn't say that it's more important, it would be the equal. See, and, and that it's and that is right. It is equal. Because it's all, like we said in Second Timothy, right? It's all written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's all under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' words, though he was God, and what he spoke was very important. It doesn't mean that his words are weightier than the words that Paul spoke or Peter or James because it's all written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's all God speaking if we believe that this book is inerrant and infallible. But you can see that little because you can listen and you go, well, no, what he said is true. What Jesus had to say was important. But was it more important? So like it's it's more important that we have the Beatitudes than... Peter talking about wives submitting. 
You know what I mean? It's no, yeah, it's all the same. It's all, it's all scripture. We believe it's all God breathed scripture. And so you can see though, just that little thing. And as I'm listening to this guy, cause I was like trying to get to what, what does this guy mean when he's talking? I'm listening to the guy on the internet. And it was like, man, it's just a little off, just a tiny bit. It wasn't real like way out there. You know, it's not like this other one that we're going to read in a minute. Um, <laughs> it wasn't way out there, but it was just a little off. And then when that guy explained to me his belief, how Jesus, you know, yeah, there's Paul and Peter and James, but then there's Jesus up here. He's so much more. His words are so much weightier. Well, no, they're not because it was the Holy Spirit that inspired all of them. Because Jesus, though, 100% men, are you like rubbing your forehead? Just waiting for you. For oh, I know. <laughs> okay. Because then, yeah, because then um, the scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So if that guy believes that Jesus' words are more, then you're putting Jesus on a higher level than the Holy Spirit, which isn't right. Which would go against what you just taught yeah. the last three weeks. Yeah, it's an equal. But you can, like I said, it's so subtle, and that's what I'm, I'm, I'm. That's a concern in the church is that that the scripture, the little twist, the little diversion, is so subtle. It's like I told you guys when I did um, search and rescue, and we had to do compass readings, and it gave us an asthmus, which is if you don't know how a compass works, there's an asthmus. It's a, it's a. a No, it's it's a um, a degree, yeah. It's a degree of of distance left, right from zero, which would be dead north. It's a degree from there, and they give you an asthmus. And, and when we did search and rescue, and I only had to walk most most of the points I had to go to were within like a hundred yards, and I never once hit directly on the place I was supposed to go, looking at my compass. I just had to be off just a little on my compass and take half a step the wrong way. And in the 100 yards, I wasn't on the point I was supposed to be on. They say that if you get in a plane, take off from LAX, head to Hawaii, and if you're one degree off from LAX, by the time you get to where the Hawaiian Islands are supposed to be, you won't even see them. You'll be so far off. That's what I'm seeing here with this guy. Jesus' words, just a little weightier than the apostles. And then... Boom, man. And by the time you start getting into all this stuff, it's just, you're so far off. You don't even, you can't even see it anymore. That's what's happening. How about this one? We are moments away. I think the culture is already there. And the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. Rob Bell. Okay, if we're going to use two thousand year ago quotes, we're going to be irrelevant to the culture. That's what Rob Bell said. This was on Oprah Winfrey very recently, like a couple months ago. But in context, what is he talking about? We're moments away from from being irrelevant. From being irrelevant. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're moments away from just being completely irrelevant because we're using a Bible and scriptures that are over two thousand years old. Socrates letters and yeah. or works and things like that. <laughs> yeah, it's this is what? Yeah, it's crazy. But this guy is like you guys. I mean, we all know who who this guy is. When when I was I was watching as he was talking with Oprah Winfrey and and she asks him things and you're just like this guy is so far he's he's that one guy that he was a tick off and he's he can't see the islands anymore <laughs> right she asks him when i say heaven what do you think of he goes my grandpa that i never met when i think of heaven i think of relationships with family members he doesn't think of god jesus he thinks of my grandpa that i never met that's what i think of that's how far and and this guy this guy's being followed by many, many Christians. Many churches, many people are following this kind of doctrine. And they see no problem with it. But see, the problem is, is that God's 
character is built into the inerrancy. These guys are saying God is irrelevant. But yet God says it. I change not. He's the same God. And when we think, and unfortunately, and this is the thing happening right now within the Calvary Chapel since Chuck Smith has died. I'm not going to get into all this stuff because I don't know who's going to listen and who's going to get mad at me. But the division that's happening in the Calvary Chapels. Because we need to be more relevant in the year 2017 than Chuck Smith was right before he died. The last 10 years of Chuck's ministry, you can look up all the stuff that is being said about him by people that, um, let's just say they were close and have uh, the ability to influence people that Chuck wants talked to. I was trying to put it as nicely as I can. Um, They say because Chuck in 1970s reached a bunch of hippies that were drug addicts and dropout. But what he had to say then does not work today. And that's why the division has happened in the Calvary Chapels. Whereas there's a group of people in the Calvary Chapels that say, no, we're going to stick the course. We're going to stay to what Chuck was doing. We're going to teach the Bible because it is relevant for today. And there's a group that's saying, no, it's not relevant for today. We need to find a new way. And so now we've attached ourselves to Rob Bell, Rick Warren, Doug Paget, these other, Mark Paget, right? It's Mark. No, it's Mark Driscoll, Doug Paget. We're going to attach to these guys because they have a more relevant way to talk to the culture of today. But God's word isn't something that comes and goes. It works this year, but it doesn't work next year. It's the same yesterday, today, forever. It was given because it is the only answer there is. So, irrelevancy, according to Rob Bell, we're there. So, with much dispute about the Bible, how can we be sure that the Bible we have today is the same as the first century church? That it is truly God's spoken word and that no other church book is as valid in leading mankind on the spiritual journey to paradise or what we believe is heaven. And that's where you see me crossed out on your notes where I was supposed to look at some statistics that I had that maybe I'll bring next week and they'll work into this study next week. But what? how do we know? I mean, we've gone through all this stuff. Who's right? Is R.C. Sproul right? Well, when we look at a guy saying that if we continue to quote letters from 2,000 years ago as our best defense, we'll become irrelevant. Or, like R.C. Sproul said, and we push against the Word of God, it's an unmovable rock, and sooner or later we'll find ourselves cursing the Word and spitting on it. I would say this is spitting on God's Word to say that if you quote it from a book from 2,000 years ago, it's irrelevant. That's spitting on it. This thing is worthless. It's no good. You've got to find something new. Find something different. And no, I haven't taken Rob Bell to lunch, but I, it's pretty obvious what he's talking about. And you guys know what I mean, so anybody who listens to it online or gets a tape, they can talk to me about what I meant by that. But So again, there should be a way to test this book against other books to check the validity, and that's what we endeavor to do. Almost an hour into it. <laughs> we have the Book of Mormon. Okay, the Book of Mormon, the main book the Mormons use for their theology. They also use the Book of Doctrines and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. Okay, Joseph Smith made many claims in the Book of Mormon of revelations that he received from the angel Moroni of ancient times here in the Americas between 600 and 421 A.D. Things about horses, steel, iron, donkeys, cattle, coins, battles that took place, etc., etc. And according to the Smithsonian, they have not found one thing. They found nothing archaeologically to back what Joseph Smith claims happened here in the Americas during that time. Nothing. They've found zero. Now you can go to Utah and they have a museum that has all this stuff in it. Kind of weird, huh? Go to the Mormon Museum and you can find all the archaeological stuff that Joseph Smith found. But they're the only ones that buy into what they found. 
because it was obviously produced by them to back what they're teaching. I wrote down just a couple things that you can read in the Book of Mormon. And how about this one? In Moroni 8.8, Listen to the words of Christ, your Redeemer, your Lord and your God. Behold, I came into the world not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole need no physician, but they that are sick. Doesn't that sound like the Bible? That's like, that's what Jesus said. He said this stuff. So when you're reading it, oh yeah, your Lord, your God, cool. Wherefore, little children are whole, for they are not capable of committing sin. Wherefore, the curse of Adam is taken from them in me, that it hath no power over them. And the law of circumcision is done away in me. Little twist. Lord, God, he names Jesus, quotes basically the scriptures, the Bible that we have, but then talks about how children don't have the capability of sin. Well, Joseph Smith may not, must not have had any children when he wrote that because they're little sinners. It's funny. I mean, because I didn't ever teach my kids some of the stuff that they did when they were little, but they did it just naturally. And then there's this one, which is the one that changed with civil rights. In Nephi 2:21-24, this is actually just verse 21. It says, And he caused the cursing to come upon them, yea, even a sore cursing, because of their iniquity. For behold, they had hardened their hearts against him, God, that they had become like unto flint. Wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. The curse of God upon that were once, notice how they put it, they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome. So the white race, they were fair, delightsome. God had pleasure and he cursed black skin on them. Okay? The Mormons did not believe that the African race was a good people. They were cursed. And that's why God cursed them so that they wouldn't inter intermingle with his people. Okay, they don't teach this anymore because civil rights changed their doctrine. Okay, I personally took this out of the Book of Mormon last night or the night before. Probably the night before. Yeah, it was the night before. On Tuesday night, I took this out myself. Okay, so it's not like I took this off of a website. I have a Book of Mormon at home. I pulled this out and read it and wrote it just as it was written. Okay, so this isn't like something that was made up on the internet. Okay, I have the Book of Mormon at home. Just like I have many of the other books at home that I can pull this stuff out. Okay, now wait a minute. So, so the, the African people are a cursed people and not delightsome like the white people. You see, it's like, wait a minute, There's, is, is this true? How do we know this isn't true? See, that's, that's where we, the Bible, we have to, is the Bible true or is the Book of Mormon true? Because the Book of Mormon is true, then we're living a lie in this country because the black people are cursed people, okay? And I have nephews and nieces that are cursed people and I love them as much as anybody else. They're great people. So you can see that little twist, that little thing. So how can you check it? How do you know it's true? Well, like I already said, we, we said the Bible is inerrant, which means it is, in fact, scientifically, okay, we know that the, the black skin, I mean, you could say, well, it's God's curse that caused the pigmentation of the skin colors, but that's all it is, is pigmentation. It's just some people get tanner than others. That's all it is. I mean, I got, they got great tans. That's all I can say. Better than mine. And it doesn't make me any better than them. Another religion is, is Shintoism, which is what you would know it better as is Kojiki. Okay, so the ultimate reality in Shinto includes the chaos from which the Kami emerged, and I'll explain who they are. They emerged but the focus of the ultimate in relationship to humanity is earth. Okay? 
certain kami can occupy natural objects, such as mountains, rivers, trees. They can also occupy sacred areas, and more rarely, human beings. Okay, the kami are spirits or phenomenon that are worshipped. Okay, that's what a kami is. Okay, and this is Shintoism, so this is Japanese. Okay, this is their belief system. This is what they think is important. Okay, most of the Eastern religions tie back to a type of a Hinduism thing. A reincarnation is big. Um, yoga is huge in Eastern religions because the way you get in touch with these spirits, the way you get closer to the universe, to the earth, to the trees and the squirrels and the everything else you're going to worship is through yoga, meditation. Um, the difference, because I know the Bible teaches meditation, the difference between biblical meditation and yoga type meditation, Eastern meditation, is in biblical meditation, when you meditate on God's Word, it is to think about. It's like, as they say, it's like a cow chewing the cud. Okay? Cow gets some hay, he chews on it, gets it kind of mushy, and swallows it. It goes into, a, they have three stomachs. They regurgitate the hay, and they chew it some more. And then it goes into the second stomach. And then they regurgitate it and they chew it some more. It goes into the third stomach. Okay? Meditation scripturally is to think about, to dwell and think over and over and over and over about the depth of whatever it is you're reading. Eastern meditation is empty your mind and think about nothing. Empty yourself out. And once you do that, you've opened yourself up to demonic possession or these here it's kami um, the spirit entities in other religions uh, but eastern meditation is not the same as biblical meditation because theirs is empty your mind God's is keep in your mind in the forefront of your mind my words huge difference between the two one God stays at the forefront one you empty yourself and whatever comes in and usually takes over and it's how a lot of people get into occultism and stuff like that. Um, I don't want to get too offensive to the yoga people, but that's what it is. And I don't care what label you want to slap on it before yoga. It is Eastern mysticism. So I'll leave it at that and probably get in trouble for it. But whatever, I don't care. Another religion, Thelema, a magical system of discerning true will with inspiration from a host of Egyptian gods uh, they are polytheistic, so many gods, and they use the book of the law as their holy text. Okay, the book of the law was written by Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley was known as the beast in his day. Full-blown occultist Satanist. They used their book. Okay, so if you read some of their stuff and the stuff they teach and compare it, again, we're going to use that in comparison with what the Bible has. Okay, there is no scientific... There is no archaeological proof to the things that they have claims to in any of them. How about the Unification Church, Sun Young Moon? I know it says Myung, but it's, we pronounce it Sun Young Moon. Okay, He is the embodied second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what he claims. Okay, The Moonies is how you would know them. They're monotheistic. They believe in one God, and it is Reverend Sun Young Moon. And they use the Bible and the exposition of the divine principle as their holy text. The, the exposition of the divine principle, guess who wrote it? Sun Young Moon. Because he was the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's the Moonies. So there's a lot of religions. So we have to know this book and believe this book and the truths of this book because if we believe it and it's inerrant as we say, Remember, it represents the character of God. It's foundational to other truths of God. So all these other religions, and then there's other ones I wrote down there that are in their other books and religions, but the Bhagavad Gita, which is Hinduism, which we just talked about some of that, the yoga and all that. How about the Branch Davidians? You guys may not remember them, Branch Davidians. Um, they were the ones that in Waco, Texas, uh, I don't even, do you remember how many people died in that, Jonathan? Hundreds, hundreds, and a lot of them were little children. 
and that was back when Bill Clinton was president, and Janet Reno was the the um, attorney general. They actually burned the place down, and in burning it down, they killed a lot of people. Um, sad, sad. But they used the Bible. The Branch Davidians, David Koresh, used the Bible to deceive his people. The other, one of the more famous ones was um, in Guyana. It was called the, I'm trying to think of the name of his church up in San Francisco. I didn't write it down. Um, but anyways, it was Jim, oh, People's Temple. Jim Jones in the People's Temple. He used the Bible to deceive all those people, get them to sell all their stuff, move to Guyana in South America where he ended up murdering just about everybody including a U.S. congressman that went down there to check on the cult because of the people that were down there. Basically, they were. that's where we get the, the, the term, don't drink the Kool-Aid when they think you're in a cult. You're drinking the Kool-Aid, which means you're drinking the poison that someone else was serving because that's what they did down there. They set up and they constantly practiced drinking this Kool-Aid so that when the time came that they were supposed to die, God had called them home. There's a big trough of Kool-Aid and the moms and the dads gave the Kool-Aid to their children laced with cyanide and they died. And if you chose not to drink the cyanide or the Kool-Aid, there was guys standing there with rifles and they just shot you in the head. So you had no choice at that point. A few escaped and were able to come back and tell what horrible, I mean, and you can see the pictures of how many people there were everywhere. It was horrible. But he used the Bible. That's why it's so important that we don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't think because I'm up here teaching that what I'm teaching is true or what Tanner teaches or Michael teaches or Adam or whoever's up here teaching or whatever you listen to on the radio. We have to make sure we check it with God's Word and believe that what God had to say is true. We can't take a little twist to it, which is what David Koresh, Jim Jones, and many others, Rob Bell and all these other guys are doing. They're putting a little twist on the Scripture and people are sucking it up. They're drinking the Kool-Aid. We have to know the scriptures so that we cannot be deceived like this. Seek God. Seek His Word. Seek Him through His Word and know the truth so that we can be set free. So, we discussed the inerrancy and fallibility of God's Word. Again, it wasn't because there is no error. There is scribal error, and there has been, again, like I said, the example I put here, 2 Kings 8.26, saying Ahaziah was 22 when he became king. 2 Chronicles 22.2 says Ahaziah was 42 when he became king. But when you look into it, 2 Chronicles 21.20 says that the father of Ahaziah, Jehoram, became the king when he was 32, and he reigned eight years. So he was 40 when he died. So uh, Jehoram was 40 years old when he died, which means that his son Ahaziah was two years older than his dad when his dad died. So we know that was a scribal error. Okay, And the only plug I will ever give to the NIV probably is this one right here, is that the NIV made the correction. Okay, That's the only thing I know of that the NIV ever did right. NIV. Sorry about NIV. NIV people that love it. They made the change, and that one I will give them credit for. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, we covered all that stuff. Um, I, I've got all the other stuff in here. I didn't know who was going to be here. I've got the statistics of what it was like uh, as far as calculating the chance of Jesus fulfilling Scripture, um, the textual evidence to support Jesus as opposed to other people, Julius Caesar, Plato, Aristotle, Homer's Iliad, okay, stuff like that. That's all in here. We have, the, we have historical books, manuscripts. Um, there's so much stuff out there to prove that what the Bible has to say is true, that it is inerrant, it is infallible. We can trust it because it is God's character that is at stake through His Word. And He has preserved it. Regardless of what Rob Bell says, it is relevant today. It was relevant 33 years ago when I was exposed to it and it changed my life. It's just as relevant today as it was way back then. And if all we had was some of the stuff from the Old Testament, it would be just as relevant as anything else we've got. It was pointing to a plan that God had and His plan is fulfilled, has been fulfilled, and will continue to be fulfilled. 
in our lives as long as we trust in Him. The guys who want to be naysayers, they want to, they want to be skeptics, they don't want to believe it. Um, let's, let's not be ones that cause them to be able to say that I don't believe the Bible because I know too many Christians. Unfortunately, it's the truth. We need to make sure we live it and that we live it to the best of our, but not perfect, perfectly because um, we won't live a perfect life. But that's the goal. Perfection is the goal. We won't get there in this life, but that's the goal. So with that, um, I didn't cover a lot of the stuff. It was all stuff I covered on the last the last time we did this. And everybody that's here except for Jonathan can get, you know, you guys heard it. It's on the CD. Um, but just some new stuff to add to. I wanted to make it different. You guys had a little more ammunition. Um, that's what my goal was and because I didn't want it the same as last time. And next week will be different as well. Um, hopefully I won't delete six hours of my study like I did Tuesday night. And then I won't have to redo it all. So but let's pray and get done because I already got my signal that I'm done. Father, thank you for tonight. And we do pray. Lord, we want to pray for those who are out there that think that your word is irrelevant. The Rob Bells, the Doug Padgett's, the Mark Driscoll's and all those others out there. They, they think it's not relevant today. Show them how relevant you are. And we pray that you would help us to trust your word, live your word, and believe your word, and use it as we live our daily lives, that we'd be an example of the truth of your word, that your character would become our character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.